Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Daniel chapter 11, if you have your Bibles. And I'm going to bring up some uh, points that I think are kind of good to give us a little bit of a, uh, just a concept uh, or just some interesting points in Daniel chapter 11. What's interesting about Daniel chapter 11 is it is the most detailed uh, prophecy, uh, definitely in the book of Daniel. It's the longest and the most detailed, and it might even be the most detailed prophecy in the entire Old Testament. Uh, so that's the first thing that's kind of interesting about Daniel chapter 11. The next thing that's kind of interesting about Daniel chapter 11 is that if you recall the earlier uh, visions that Daniel had, the visions that Nebuchadnezzar had that, the, that were interpreted in the book of Daniel, they had a lot of symbolism in them. Remember the ram and the goat and the statue made of different metals? And there's all this symbolism in these earlier dreams and visions. Well, they are absent in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is very straightforward about kings and kingdoms. And uh, we just finished chapter 10 last week. And while chapter 10 describes spiritual warfare in the heavenlies, and we talked about that with uh, Michael the angel and, and Gabriel and the, you know, the, the, just the warfare that takes place, chapter 10 deals with spiritual warfare in the heavenlies. Chapter 11 deals with earthly struggles between kings and kingdoms. And chapter 11 also describes sinful actions by kings. We're going to read about strife. We're going to read about intrigue, flattery, lies, and deceits. Everything that makes a good Hollywood movie, you're going to read in here. And as you're going through that, you go, man, someone should make a movie about this. It's got so much drama. And <coughs> excuse me. So we're going to be reading about that. And those sinful actions are motivated by sinful emotions. People in rage are going to be doing things. There's going to be pride mentioned, stubborn self-will you know, rebelliousness, all these sinful emotions are going to be described in chapter 11. And yet what's interesting about this is that even in the midst of all that rebellion, the things that people are doing things out of rage and sinful things that are people, people are doing, God's sovereign will is being accomplished no matter what as we go through this chapter. And the sovereign will was prophesied long before these men and women that we're going to read about were even around long before. Another thing that you'll notice in chapter 11 is that the kings of the north and the south are going to figure very prominently, at least in this morning and what we're looking at this morning. Um, the kings of the north, that's describing when we say, well, what do you mean by north and south? It's north of Israel and south of Israel. That's the focus of the kings of the north and the south. And these kings do their own thing. They do their things according to their own self-interest. You know, they're concerned about their kingdom. They're, they're hanging on to their power. And so they're doing battles and all these things that we'll be reading about. And yet they continually come in contact with the nation of Israel. Why? Because Israel is geographically smack dab in between both of these kingdoms. So those are the things that I kind of wanted to bring out in chapter 11 as far as some interesting points. Let's go ahead and dig into chapter 11 and uh, start with it. So first of all, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, or Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. 
And, you know, uh, last week I probably should just tag that on to the end of chapter 10 because this is the angel speaking to Daniel. But one thing that I think is kind of interesting, and, you know, chapter and verse is not inspired as far as what chapters and verse. That was added later. So the scriptures kind of just flows together. And someone thought that that was a good spot to, hey, let's make break this and make this chapter 11. I have no idea why they put chapter or verse 1 in chapter 11. But... I think it's also just a kind of a reminder that although these things are taking place on earth, there's spiritual warfare taking place in heaven above. And it's very interesting that here Darius the Mede or Darius the Mede, you know, he's not a believer in the Lord necessarily. He might be now, I don't know. But, but you know, at the time, he's just this pagan king. And yet, because of God's will, this angel is standing up and encouraging him in what God had for him to do regarding the nation of Israel. So I think it's kind of a cool thing. Anyways, moving on to verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. The first king, and you know, I've got a list of some kings here. Um, I'm going to tell you who they are. I wish I had the graphic to show you, but I don't. Um, But what's interesting about these first three kings is there's a discrepancy about them. So the ones that I'm going to read off, you might go, you know, I thought it was someone else. You might be right. I don't know. Um, But the first three kings, anyways, what I have for the first king is Ahasuerus, and he's the one that's mentioned in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. The second king would be Artaxerxes, mentioned in Ezra 4, verse 7. And the third king was Darius, which I mentioned earlier, and he's in Ezra 4, verse 24. Um, actually, I think that's a different Darius, but anyways. Verse, uh, second half of verse 11, or verse 2. And the fourth shall be richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all the realm of Greece. This fourth king, you know, I mentioned the first three kings. There's some discrepancies about who they are because there were several other kings. But this fourth king, they're pretty much all united on the fact that this is Xerxes. And he is quite possibly the king that's mentioned in Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. Could very well be the same king. It says here in verse 2 that he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. And if this is in fact the king of the book of Esther, then what is occurring here probably happened between chapter 1 and chapter 2. We know from history that in 580 BC, his fleet and his troops were defeated. And after that battle, Persia really never rose to great power after that. So what's interesting is Daniel... Uh, they think, whoever they are, I don't know the experts, I'm not one of them, but the experts think that Daniel probably uh, died in the year of 80, or excuse me, BC 530, 530 BC, which means that these four kings that are mentioned all were after the time of Daniel. So it's not like Daniel's just writing this as he's looking back at history. This is history in advance, prophetic history in advance. Verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. This would be Alexander the Great. Verse 4. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides thee. Alexander died in Babylon in 323 B.C. 
And from history, we know that his kingdom, it didn't go to his ancestors or his progeny or anything like that. His four generals split up his empire. And uh, a good portion of what we're going to be looking at this morning deals with the two kingdoms of two of the generals. And the reason why is because they are, again, tied with their interaction with Israel. Now, as you go through this, I don't know if you've ever read chapter 11 before, but we start reading in verse 5 and going on through a good portion of, the ch- of this book. We'll read about uh, this chapter, excuse me. We'll read about the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And it just keeps going, the kings of the north, kings of the south. And after a while, you're like, well, who is this? And you can get really confused. That's why I was really hoping the graphics would be here, because then I was going to try to show every time who are we talking about. Um, it's, what's interesting about that, though, is, you know, if, you, if there was a prophecy about the United States for like, you know, a couple hundred years of what's going to happen in the United States, and it was similar to this, there'd be, and the president did this, and the president did that, and then you go, well, which president? There's you've been so many. Every four to eight years, there's a different president. Well, it's kind of the same with this. You know, there's kings of the north. They're going to change over time. One's going to die. One's going to get, you know, they'll be intrigued. Someone will be taken over, whatever. Uh, and same with the kings of the south. There's just going to be an ongoing thing. So that's where the confusion lies. Um, but anyways, I'm going to add to the confusion. Verse 5. <laughs> also, the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion, and at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, uh, and with him who strengthened her in those times. At this time the king of the south is Ptolemy, uh, the first, and uh, he's, the, of course, the king of Egypt. That's the kingdom of the south. The king of the north at this point would be Seleucus, Nicator, and he's the king of the north. The kingdom of the north would be the region of Syria, and I say the region because Syria at this point is not quite a nation at this point, but it's that region, and so we're going to call it Syria throughout here. It mentions there one of his princes, and that, of course, would be Alexander's prince, and that's General Seleucus. Um, when you look back at history, we realize that uh, uh, Seleucus became much more powerful than Ptolemy. And as we go through this, you've maybe heard of the Seleucid dynasties or the Seleucid kingdom. That's these kingdoms from the kingdom of the north, from Seleucus and the Ptolemies. These guys are going to be fighting each other for about 130 years, and... They're going to kind of take turns, not on purpose, but the, you know, someone's going to be more powerful. Whoever's more powerful at the time, they are going to control Israel during the time, the, the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Um, and so it's, it's going to kind of go back and forth. Again, Israel's kind of smack dab stuck in the middle of them. One of the things that kingdoms do, and you know, even the, the kings that are on earth today, you know, if you look at some of the princes and princesses and all that you know there's a lot of intermarriage between the different nations of kings if you it's really kind of an interesting thing well kingdoms often form political alliances through marriage and back then it was no different ptolemy the second's daughter was name her name was berenice she was married off to the seleucid king antiochus the second 
problem with that marriage and that political alliance is that it didn't last very long. Ptolemy II, her, his, her father, passed away, died, and at that time Antiochus put away his wife Berenice, and he remarried his former wife by the name of Laodice, Laodice, I think that's how you pronounce it. Well, Laodice didn't trust Antiochus, and she poisoned him. And then later she killed uh, Berenice, she killed her attendants and uh, her servants, and then she also murdered her infant-born son as well. I mean, this is like drama. Uh, and then she put her son, Seleucus Callinicus, uh, on the throne of the northern kingdom. I'm probably slaughtering those names, but we'll just call him Cal uh, for this point. Verse 7. But from a branch of her roots, this is Berenice, from a branch from her, of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and, sh and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So a branch of her, and we're speaking of Berenice's roots, this is her brother, Ptolemy III, and he's, of course, the king of Egypt at this time. The king of the north is still Seleucus Calinius, or Cal, as we'll call him. Um, and uh, anyways, what's interesting is that Ptolemy, this brother of Berenice, he erected a monument that's called the Marmor Adulatanum. Sounds like Adulus or whatever. Anyways, it was this monument that recorded his victories. And after these victories, at this point, he, it kind of like he stopped invading the nation of the north. Verse 10. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strifes. So two of this guy's sons. The older son was a guy by the name of Seleucus Seranus. His younger son was Antiochus III. He was also known as Antiochus the Great. Now the older son, Seleucus Seranus, was killed, according to the historians, on a military battle. And what's interesting, I went to look, okay, how did he die? Well, some people say he fell off his horse. Other people say he was poisoned by his generals. And I'm thinking, hmm, it sounds like there's some royal spin going on here, you know, if you think about it, because, you know, he probably did fall off his horse, but that doesn't sound good for a prince, <laughs> you know. He, the guy just was a, was a klutz, you know, he just fell off his horse. He must have been poisoned by his generals. So anyways... That's how I look at those. That's the way my mind works with these things. Whatever the case is, he died, and the younger son, Antiochus the Great, is the king that we're going to be looking at here in verse 11. And actually, he'll be, we'll be talking about him for quite a while here. Verse 11, And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemies. And when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. So the king of the south here is a guy by the name of Ptolemy Philopater. And the king of the south, or excuse me, the king of the north, as I mentioned, is Antiochus the Great. Well, Ptolemy's army had 70,000 infantry, 
5,000 cavalry and 73 elephants. And uh, Antiochus had 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants. I just was just thinking about that. And I found this old drawing, which I was going to show you, um, about this elephants in battle. And I thought, man, can you imagine being an inf infantry person and you're going up against these elephants that are, you know, these guys are on top of it shooting down at you with their bows and arrows and stuff. And, and, and you know, you're getting trampled by elephants. It kind of reminded me of that Star Wars scene. You know, that one battle where those those walking things, it's, you know, I think that's probably where Spielberg got his ideas from. I don't know, but anyways. Well, the entire army of Antiochus was defeated. And then verse 13, For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much, a king, uh, and much equipment. So the king of the north was defeated, but he goes back again later with a larger army and gathers together and tries to do battle again. Verse 14, Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south, also, violent men of your people, speaking to Daniel, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mount and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. The king of the south at this point is a guy by the name of Ptolemy Epiphanes. And he was actually a very young boy at this time. I've read somewhere like he's five years old at this time. The king of the north, again, is Antiochus the Great. And I think Antiochus the Great kind of took advantage of the fact that this king was so young that he got together with a guy by the name of Philip of Macedon, who had another kingdom, and they united together to go and attack Egypt. And it says they're violent men of your people, um, shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. What happened was there were Jews that were sick and tired of the Ptolemites, or the, you know, the kingdom of the south, being in control and, and ruling over their nation. And so they aligned themselves with Antiochus the Great. And this is what this is referring to. This fortified city that's mentioned that was taken, it's known, it was Paneus, um, that which is at the top of the Jordan, uh, headwaters of the Jordan River. Well, anyways, Antiochus was more successful in this battle. He ended up taking Sidon, uh, Sidon, and then he can, at this point now, he's controlling Israel. He's, he's got that whole northern region there. It's like, you know, now there's a new sheriff in town, basically. And, uh, uh, you know, these guys, uh, well, Egypt tried to take it back in a battle, but they were unsuccessful. Look verse 16. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. Again, the glorious land. We're talking about uh, the nation of Israel. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom, and upright ones with him, thus he shall do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. The Jewish people of the glorious land, the Jews, of course, they were tired of the Ptolemites being in control, and so they had helped Antiochus uh, to liberate them, so to speak, but it came at a price. Uh, this new sheriff wasn't really any better than the Egyptians, 
and uh, he ended up turning destruction upon the glorious land and its people. So it mentions here about a daughter of women. This daughter of women, if you go back into history, was Cleopatra, but it's not Elizabeth Taylor. Okay, it's not that Cleopatra. It's uh, actually, it was her ancestor, not Elizabeth Taylor's ancestor, but Cleopatra's ancestor. She lived about 100 years. This is about 100 years before the Cleopatra that we all know about um, existed or was born. So this was like the forerunner, the, the ancestor of her. Her name was Cleopatra. Now, during this time in history, Rome was starting to become powerful. They were starting to grow in strength in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, and under pressure from Rome, Antioch, Antiochus tried to make a peace treaty with Egypt. And he gave his young daughter, Cleopatra, to, at this time, he's a seven-year-old king, Ptolemy Epiphanes. For marriage, I don't know how she, how old she was. I'm assuming she was pretty young. And Antioch, Antiochus acted like, you know, it's he was doing it. He had the highest motives, you know. He's just trying to bring peace and kind of let's let's finally, you know, come together, or whatever. And uh, the problem was, was uh, Cleopatra. She started to fall in love with her husband, and his plans kind of fell apart because she became more loyal to her husband. He was hoping to kind of use her as a way in to kind of manipulate the situation for his advantage. It was just like a Hollywood movie, or Hallmark movie maybe anyways. Um, but she ended up falling in love with her husband. And at that time, I don't know how long, how old they were at this point, but from that point on, Ptolemy never trusted his father-in-law. So his plans kind of fell apart. Verse 18. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. This is kind of describing the end of the rule of Antiochus the Great. Um, he attempted to conquer Greece, but he was defeated. And needing money badly for his treasury, the end of his story is, is that he went into a Babylonian temple and tried to pillage it to get money, to get riches out of it. And the locals of that place there, they ended up murdering him because they were enraged that he was desecrating their temple. Verse 20, so that's the end of Antiochus the Great. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. This one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom was Seleucus IV Philopater. He was, and it says that he didn't, he only did it with, you know, wasn't too long that he reigned there. Within a few days he shall be destroyed. History tells us that he was poisoned by a person, his treasurer named Heliodorus, and when he was murdered, it set the stage for this next ruler of the Seleucid kingdom, Antiochus IV. Verse 21, And in his place shall arise a vile person, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. So when Antiochus, uh, excuse me, when Seleucus died, there were... <clears throat> Three different uh, people that took his place. Uh, one of them, 
he had a son by the name of Demetrius, and uh, he was a prisoner. The problem was he was a prisoner in Rome, so he was unavailable. There was a son named Antiochus, but he was just a baby. And then there was his brother, Antiochus IV. And according to history, Antiochus helped uh, a guy by the name of Antiochus, excuse me, helped Antiochus by murdering that infant son. And uh, anyways, at that point, Antiochus turned around and murdered the guy that murdered the infant son, and uh, he secured his throne that way. This guy, Antiochus IV, he called himself, he added a name to himself called Epiphanes, and that means the glorious one. He was not a proud guy, he's very humble, but he wanted to be known as Antiochus, the glorious one. And uh, this is the guy, if you remember back in chapter 8, we were reading about the ram and the goats, uh, the ram and the goat and the, the symbolic prophecies. And the goat, of course, was the Greek empire. And remember reading in the first, I think it's like verses uh, 9 through 14 of chapter 8, talks about these four horns, which were the four horns of Alexander's kingdom, the four generals. And one of those grew out of there. Um, and it talks about that one in uh, verses 9 through 14. This is Antiochus. This is the same person, Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 22, with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Antiochus was attacked by a large army, probably from Egypt, but he was able to defeat him. This prince of the covenant that's mentioned here, this refers to an incident in 172 BC where Antiochus ordered the murder of the high priest Onias III. It was a Jewish high priest. He ordered the murder of him and put his brother, uh, Onias' brother, Menelaus, I think that's his name, uh, in there in place, probably like a puppet uh, person, so, so to speak. Verse 23, And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and be strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand." For they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. The king of the south at this point is Ptolemy Philometer. I don't know. I'm, I, Ptolemy Phil, we we'll call him. Um, the king of the north is Antiochus, of course, Epiphanes. And uh, Antiochus was a very shrewd person, very deceptive, very, uh, uh, he, he was a manipulator. And he got into his position by deceiving people and by intrigue. And it says there, he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. And what the historians tell us is that Antiochus bought loyalty and popularity by giving money, giving wealth to people around him. It reminds me of uh, 
what people want to do here in our nation, right? They want to give everything away, trying to trying to gain some some uh, some political clout by having all these giveaways and stuff. It reminds me of Venezuela. Have you ever guys ever studied the history of the nation of Venezuela? They were the most wealthiest South American Central American uh, nation of, of that hemisphere, the wealthiest because of the petroleum that they had, and. Uh, this guy by the name of Hugo Chavez came in, is socialist or communist actually, and he started programs giving away money to the poor people, and he became very popular, kind of similar to what this this Antiochus Epiphanes did. He bought and purchased his power, and you know it was great because they were the wealthiest nation, so they could give money left and right and stuff. You look at Venezuela today; they're the poorest nation now. And it reminds me of what Margaret Thatcher once said. She said, the problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money. And that's exactly what happened. Anyways, this guy's kind of like that. You know, he's trying, to, he's trying to influence people by giving away money. Verse 25 there describes a battle between Antiochus forces and the Egyptians. And that that battle, the Egyptians were defeated. Antiochus also convinced the king of the south was Ptolemy's servants to turn against Ptolemy, and they ended up doing that. So he was, he was guy was really uh, very sinister in what he did. And at the end there, it describes this peace conference that Antiochus and Ptolemy, uh, they met at the same table. They're both sinners. They're both evil. They both had their own, you know, their own power that they were trying to hang on to. And so they were meeting, and it looked like it was a good, you know, like a peace conference, but both of them were liars, basically. That's what that's describing there. Verse 28, While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary of fortresses. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the flame, excuse me, by the sword, by and flame by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall they will be aided with a little help, but many shall join them uh, join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them and purify them and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So what this is describing is this time a little bit later on, a few years later, that Antiochus Epiphanes decided to go back and invade Egypt again. The problem was, remember I mentioned earlier, Rome was starting to become more powerful and he was intercepted by a, the Roman fleet under, the, under a general by the name of Popilius Laenus. And it's kind of an interesting story. Popilius 
demanded that Antiochus return back to, to Palestine. It's basically, like, you know, it's like they had a naval blockade. You just go back, go back to where you came from. And Antiochus at that point said, you know, I'm going to consult with my advisors. And Popilius thought, well, this guy is trying to buy time. And so there's a story that actually what this guy did, this Roman uh, general did, was he drew in the sand around Antiochus, he drew this circle in the sand, and he said, you call your advisors right now, have them consult you right now. He says, and if, if, if you don't, and if you step across this line, we're going to consider this war. And uh, he must have been outnumbered, must have been, over, you know, they must have been much more powerful at this point. Whatever the case was, Antiochus humbled himself. Well, he didn't humble himself, I should say. He was humbled. And uh, he ended up backing down and going back towards Palestine. This guy was humiliated. And he had been humiliated. And it says that he was furious. So that's what it says. This king's going to be furious. He was ticked off. And uh, you think about human nature. You know, human nature, what, what does a person do when they're humiliated or they're forced, they're backed into a corner where it's like they're helpless and they can't do anything about it. What do they typically do, human nature? They typically take out their, their anger on someone else. Typically. That's, that's, that's just human nature. And that is exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He was humiliated in front of his army. And so he turned around and he went back to Palestine and he turned against the people of Palestine and poured out his fury there. It's told that he led 20,000 men against Jerusalem and he abolished temple worship. At that point he put up an image of Zeus and was demanding that people worship it or sacrifice to the image and he desecrated the temple by offering a swine. He sacrificed a pig on the altar and uh, some of the Jewish people actually at that point, they actually turned, uh, they, they, they kind of like forsake Judaism and, and they kind of adopted uh, Greek or embraced Greek culture. Um, but there were many that didn't. And it is said that Antiochus killed 80,000 Jews. He took 40,000 as prisoners. He sold 40,000 as slaves. And then he plundered the temple. And they think the value of the temple in today's dollars was about a billion dollars worth. And he just completely just desecrated and destroyed it. Uh, and, start, and you know he gave himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes, a glorious one. Well, he had a nickname of Antiochus Epimanes, which means the madman. And this guy was just, he was just, you know, with rage. He was doing this with, with hatred. At the end of verse 32, you'll notice it says, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. This is probably referring to a guy by the name of Judah or Judas and his brothers. They were known as the Maccabees. And these Jewish men launched a guerrilla war against Antiochus that stretched all the way to 165 BC. They ended up overthrowing the Syrians and they threw them out of Jerusalem, and they were cleansed the temple. And uh, so that was the end of Antiochus Epiphanes. And that's actually where we're going to stop this morning, and I'll explain that why next week. But um, that was history in advance, at least in Daniel. When Daniel got the history, it was a history in advance. We look back on it as history. And uh, so there's some applications because, you know, I'm 
I'm assuming some of you guys, your eyes are kind of glazing over, like, I wish he had graphics, so he's like, I look at something. <laughs> I do too, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> um, it's amazing how fast you go when you run out of graphics anyways. Um, but there are some application because it's like I just rattled off all kinds of stuff, and believe me, I could have got even more detailed, but we would be here for a few hours, you know, going through this, and so trying to sum up stuff. Um, but there is some application, I think, that we can take out of what we talked about this morning. The first is, this is so detailed and accurate. Remember I said there's no symbolism, it's just straightforward, these kings and these kingdoms... It is so accurate that there are skeptics that said, Daniel, the book, this must have been written by someone after the time of Daniel, after the time of the Maccabees, because nobody could have prophesied this so detailed and so accurate. Well, yes, the Holy Spirit. This is divine authorship. And, it, and it, you know, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were revealed, that, even, that really even uh, bolstered the case that this is historical, Daniel wrote it, and uh, it was long before any of these things took place. So that just gives us uh, more comfort in knowing the scriptures. Man, it's, it's written by God. It's divinely inspired. And so this is one of those things, cases that proves divine authorship. The second thing that, that I always take out of things like this is that if you know, as we were reading through this and reading about these daughters and the rage and the, you know, these things... It is so literal, and it was literally fulfilled exactly the way it was written. It was literally fulfilled. It's not like, you know, well, this kind, kind of looks like this. this is, maybe this will we'll kind of squeeze this in and make it look like that. It was literally fulfilled. And I always look at prophecy, and I go, you know, if past prophecy has been literally fulfilled like that, next week we're going to be looking at prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet that's why i stopped right here because moving on from how here we're going to be talking about another king of the north which is actually the antichrist we'll explain that next week but if i look back at past prophecy and say you know this has been fulfilled literally but looking forward i go well that must be symbol symbolic you know it's, it can't be that way and stuff if the past was fulfilled literally why wouldn't the future be fulfilled literally the prophecies so I'm a literalist when I look at scripture. There are some things that are obviously um, symbolic. You know, you get into the book of Re uh, Revelation, it talks about the dragon and, and the woman and stuff. And it's, it's, that's symbolism there. It's obvious. In fact, scripture even re you know, reveals what that symbolism is. Um, but when it's not revealed in scripture that says this is a symbol or something, I take it literally. I really do. And uh, until I'm proved otherwise that it's symbolic. But I think it's good for us when we read scripture like that, to understand God means what he says, and he's going to do exactly what he says. So it's a good, a good reminder, I think, the literal fulfillment. The third thing that I think is an application for us, we talked about two of those kingdoms, the, and, and the Persian Empire was first. We talked about those four kings. Um, the Persian Empire, and then we talked about the Greek Empire and all these kings of the north, um, the Greek Empire. Um, <clears throat> at one time, both of those empires tried to wipe out the Jewish people and wipe out Judaism. One was, of course, the Persians, and we didn't read it today or this week, but if you go to the book of Esther, that's the story of a guy named Haman who tried, he was like the Hitler of his day, trying to completely eradicate the Jewish people. He failed. And here, that was the Persian Empire. The Greek Empire, this is, we just read about Antiochus, 
who tried to wipe out the Jews, tried to stamp out Judaism. And again, he failed as well. And so what I look at this as an application is I look at the nation of Israel today and God has preserved the nation of Israel. He preserved them through the control of these two dynasties, the Ptolemy and the Seleucid uh, dynasty. And here's the application. God has a covenant He's got a plan for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish person. Even today, you can read it in Romans chapter 11. God has a plan for Israel. And so when I read or I hear about people that say that they're going to wipe Israel off the map, <laughs> it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. In fact, I like this prophecy in Zechariah 12, verse 3. It says, and it shall happen in that day, this is speaking about the tribulation, that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. And you know, Jerusalem's always in the news, isn't it? You always read about Jerusalem in the news and, you know, these people that say, we're going to wipe them off the face of the earth. We're going to, you know, we're going to push them into the Mediterranean. And I go, yeah, good luck. It ain't going to happen. So God has a plan and a purpose for the nation of Israel. The fourth thing and I think this is one of the things that I think, I think I look at today for you and I in our culture. All this intrigue, the deceit, the power struggles, the rage that we read about, the fury of people doing these things, no matter what those kings and kingdoms did in their rage and in their power, they are still achieving God's sovereign will. And so I look at the crazy things that are going on in our nation right now and in our culture, the crazy godless things. And uh, you know what? People may think that they're in control. They may think that they're manipulating situations, that they've got you know, political clout now because they did this or did that or whatever. They are still fulfilling God's sovereign will. God is still on the throne in control. And so I don't, uh, you know, I mean, I get upset, you know, and I, I go, oh, man, but... I always go back and go, you know what? God's still on the throne. He knows what's going on. It hasn't surprised him. He's got a plan and a purpose, even for the things that you and I are going through. So, you know, with everything that's going on in our nation, I'm kind of bringing it down to the United States, but everything that's going on in our nation politically, um, about a year ago, it was like, oh, man, looks like things are really, really bad. And they are really, really bad. But now it's like, well, there's hope that there's going to be some, you know, straightening out of stuff. Whether it does or doesn't, God's on the throne. He's in control. And I'm not going to put my, help, my trust in a political party anyways because they're all, we're all sinners. We're all people of the flesh. And whoever gets into power, they want to keep power. You know, that's just the nature of human nature. And so, you know what? God's on the throne. So that's a, I think that's a good application when we look at all this stuff. I mean, it's crazy when you read it. It's like you could, you could, how many movies could you do? And I'm sure they have done movies like this. You know, there's like all the human nature that Hollywood likes to portray and stuff. Anyways, the fifth thing and the final thing that I think is a good application for us is the trials and the persecutions. It says there at the end of verse 35, and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. And I think this is speaking about the people of those days, the ones that were still true to the Lord God in the midst of it. They didn't embrace the Greek culture. They stayed true to it. But that's so true for you and I. No matter what happens for you and I, trials 
man, well, there's people here that are going through trials right now. There are people that are going to go through trials. That's the nature of life. You've either been in a trial or you're going into a trial, you know, or you just came out of one. Trials are a part of life in a fallen world, and so is persecution. Jesus said we will be persecuted. So, you know, for a long time we've been really kind of, we've been kind of like cruising through, but there's time. I really believe there's a difficult time coming, more difficult than what we're experiencing. Whatever those trials are and whatever those persecutions are, God has a way of using that to refine you and I. When things are going really good, I don't need to pray as much, right? I mean, things are going good. And I mean, I still want to pray. Don't get me wrong. But when things are going tough in my life, man, I'm on my knees constantly praying. So trials are not necessarily, we look at them as a bad, but God uses them for good because it turns us towards him to depend on him and to rely on him. And the cool thing is he's faithful. He's faithful and he loves us. He's not going to give us anything that we can't endure. And he's going to provide for us because we serve a faithful, loving God who's in control. So that's, I think, the one thing that I want to take out of the very end of that. So we're going to stop here. And next week, we're going to look at the future, the prophecies that were given back then that have not been fulfilled yet. But they're coming to a world near you very soon, I think. <laughs> Anyways, let's go Lord in prayer.